So I have, uh, I have a letter here uh, that I want to read uh, to you all. <clears throat> to the under-shepherd and messenger of the Church in Prosperity, West Virginia, Faith Baptist, from the chief shepherd and living word, the head of the church and the rock on which it is built. I know about your work and your strength. I also see your weakness and your struggles. In me, you will always find all that you need. Ask of me and apply what I give you. I know of your love for me, and I know all that you love more than me. I commend you for the righteousness you pursue and walk in. And I command you to reject and repent of all the unrighteousness you still chase after and choose. I always intercede for you. I always love you. I am always with you. And I say to you, watch and wait, because I am soon coming for you. What if that letter was literally given to us by the Lord Jesus? What if I had received that by supernatural means? And what I read was actually from our Savior and Lord. I would hope, would hope it would cause us to sit up a little bit, cause us to pay attention a little bit more, cause us to look inwardly a little deeper, and cause us to change what would need to be changed. Here's the thing, though. Even though the letters to the specific churches in Asia Minor that John faithfully recorded the revelation he received and sent out, even though they were specific churches at a, at a, a very specific time in history, what was said to those churches, by extension, are said to us. Because each of those seven churches represent every church in every age, from the first century all the way up to us today. And while there were some specific things that were definitely in context to those churches uniquely, there are a lot of things contained in those correspondence that are meant for every single church, including us. Things that we are to look at and, and draw out and apply to our lives and to our body. Things that are symptomatic of us, just as they are symptomatic of the churches that received this letter originally that we are going to be looking at. At this point in our series, in our study of Revelation, what Revelation reveals, our attention is going to be on the seven specific churches that Jesus told John to send this revelation to. The seven lampstands that John saw in this revelation. The church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We're going to start with Ephesus. That was the first church 
uh, to receive the, the letters, the, the letter of Revelation. And it was strategic. It was the first church on the route that all the other churches would receive the letters. It was uh, a, a very uh, strategic delivery route. It was also um, probably the most prominent church. Ephesus was the most prominent city of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. It was a, a harbor and a port city. It was where all the trade from Rome came into Asia Minor and vice versa. So it was a very, very important trade city. It was an influential city. It was full of philosophy and thought. It was full of riches. It was a cultural giant. And it was also the epicenter of pagan worship. It was here where the great temple of Artemis or Diana, same, same uh, false deity, was stationed. In fact, the, the statue in honor of Diana or Artemis was one of the, the seven wonders of the world at the time. And so this was, for many, many reasons, a very influential, very significant city. Therefore, the church that had been planted there was one of the most influential and important churches in all of Asia Minor. So it made sense that John would start with Ephesus. The Ephesus church was planted and pastored by the Apostle Paul, and then it was later pastored by his protege, Timothy. And then many church historians believe that John himself, the Apostle John, also pastored the church and ended his life and his ministry there at Ephesus. So, all that being said, it's, it's pretty clear this church, the Ephesus church, had quite the legacy. They had quite a rich spiritual heritage and foundation. Paul, Timothy, John, um, also Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos were part of this church. I mean, so you have, you have some giants of the faith present and active in building this church. That's an important background for all of us to keep in mind as we read what was written to this church and what was going on there. This letter and many of the the letters, this is true of just about all of the letters uh, that were sent out, this letter is a great example of a grace and truth sandwich. A grace and truth sandwich. It's where Jesus didn't just immediately launch into all that was wrong with this church. He didn't start beating them over the head and criticizing and pointing out all the flaws and failures and weaknesses. That's not what he did. We're going to see it in just a minute. He starts off recognizing the good things in their lives, the good things in this body, the things that are going right, the things that are going well, the things that you can look at and and see are testimonies of, of a healthy, vibrant church. He recognizes that. He focuses on the good before he gets to the bad. It's good news first before he gets to the the bad news. It's focusing on the positives before he highlights the negatives. And then he ends with coming back around and recognizing the good again. So you've got good, you've got negative but necessary, and then you've got good again. And Church, that's a really, really good pattern and example for all of us to keep in mind and apply whenever we have confrontation. 
Um, let, me, let me just give you that reminder, as I am reminded myself, whenever you are having to, to do those difficult discussions with people, having those hard conversations that nobody loves, whenever confrontation is necessary and you're uncomfortable doing it, which we all are, but yet often it's necessary, let's keep in mind whether it's your family or a friend or a fellow church member or an employee, it doesn't matter. Whenever you have to confront someone and have those difficult conversations, let's follow this example, all right? Let's start with the good. Let's recognize the positive and not just jump right into the negative. And let's remember also to come back around as we're wrapping things up and once again reinforce and highlight the good things, the positives. Things are going to go so much better in those situations if we follow that example. And that's what we're going to see here. So um, with all that being said, I invite you to follow along with me in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. That's going to be where we are. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And we're going to start off with verses 1 through 4. Revelation 2, beginning with verse 1 and 2, verse 4. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and this is, I'll remind you, the Lord Jesus dictating this letter, these statements. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Last week we talked about the fact that that, that is pointing to the seven messengers or pastor teachers of these churches, the specific pastors tasked with leading and under-shepherding these churches. That's the seven stars that Jesus holds in His right hand. And the seven golden lampstands are the churches themselves. Talked about that last week. And if you weren't here, you can catch that on, on the podcast or on our website so you're all caught up. So that's what is being mentioned here again. Jesus controlling and leading and directing His church and those who lead under Him. Verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works. That's a reminder that Jesus knows all things. There's nothing outside of His knowledge. There's nothing outside of His awareness. He is fully God and therefore has all the, the divine privileges and abilities and prerogatives that the Father has or the Spirit has. This is His all-knowing attribute. I know your works, Jesus says, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. See, there's the good. Jesus says, hey, I want to point out to you all that I see that's going well with you. I want to point out to you and recognize and draw attention to the fact that that you are doing a lot right. There's a lot going well that I, I see and I'm grateful for and I appreciate and I find joy in. I know how hard you're working and you're serving. You're working for me and, and you're, you're diligent in your, your walk and you're diligent in, in serving. You're diligent in being the body that I need you to be. 
You're patient. You're, you endure. I, I recognize that you don't put up with sin. Outward, obvious sin. You don't, you don't compromise on that and say that it's okay. You know, you, you don't bear with those who are evil, he said. I also recognize Jesus is saying to this church, your discernment. You're a discerning church. You, you test those who say we are apostles just like your pastor is, John or Timothy before him or, or Paul. Uh, we, we, are, we are just as much bearers of the truth and, and messengers of the gospel as they are. But Jesus says you, you test the spirits. John, who is the, the dictator here, the, the recipient of this revelation, the one who's giving this out, in his own epistle, he said that. He said, I want everybody to test the spirits to see whether they are of God or not. Don't just believe that everybody is exactly right and, and don't just believe what they say on face value. Discern what they're saying to you because there's a lot of falsehood that's snuck in with the, the truth. There's a lot of deception out there. Be aware of it. And this church is doing that. Jesus says you've, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. You've rejected falsehood. You've rejected false teaching. He says you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. That points to persecution. This church in Ephesus, like many around the empire, were dealing with and facing and, and enduring Many times intense and severe persecution. Remember where John is and why he's there. He's on the island of Patmos, exiled. He's a political prisoner for the name of Jesus Christ and for the gospel. That's his only offense, his only crime. So he was sent to this penal colony because of the testimony of Jesus. And, and many were, were experiencing the same kind of thing. And, and Ephesus as I said at the beginning, it was the epicenter of pagan worship to Artemis. And there, were, there was very little tolerance for anybody who would point out that that, that was false and that only, only Jesus is truth. So Jesus says, I see all these things. These are good things. They're things I hold up as an example. Verse 4, but... Remember the grace sandwich, grace and truth sandwich, grace, truth, even if it's hard truth, and grace again. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And this is left, not lost. That's an important difference. When you leave something, you, you've made a, a conscious decision to do it. It's intentional, right? Uh, you're going to leave in a little bit today to go out of this building and to go somewhere else. You're, you're making a conscious decision to leave this building. Um, if you leave behind your existing home and move somewhere else, you didn't lose your home necessarily. You, you, you've made a decision to leave it for something else. When you lose something you didn't mean to, you didn't want to, but it's lost. It's gone. Where is this? What happened to us? I don't know. I had it. Now I don't. You know, car keys especially. That's the big thing, right? You lose it. You didn't just leave them on purpose. You lost it. So what we're talking about here is some choices 
and some actions that they are responsible for. They left the love they had at first. They didn't just lose it randomly. Very important distinction. So what you see here in these opening statements is a church where everything looked great on the outside, and a lot was great, but there was a serious problem on the inside. You have abandoned the love you had at first, Jesus said. This was a church where the casual observer would look at it and say, wow, what a church. I mean, this is a happening, vibrant church. Look at all that they've got going on there. I mean, my goodness, Paul planted it. The super apostle. Then when, when he was done, his protege, Timothy, who Paul mentored, who is a great pastor in his own right, man, he was the pastor. And then, I mean, and before Timothy and even before Paul, there was, there was Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos. They were active and participating. And then later on, John, the beloved disciple. And, and they had all this discernment and they had this endurance. And, and you, it, it's, it's clear we can kind of defer here that, that there was a strong stance on doctrinal purity. And all of these things that, that were great. It was the kind of church where you'd look at and you'd think, man, I want to go and be part of that church. I want to be part of what they're doing there. They've got some great stuff going on. But one who is able to look deeper, in fact, the only one who is able to look as deep as is needed, the head of the church himself, not John, not Paul, not Timothy, Jesus pointed out something that not any casual observer would be able to see, most likely. Certainly not unless they were there for a long time. And maybe the people themselves weren't even completely aware of it. Maybe they had grown callous and cold to the problem and to the issue. The fact that all these other things were good and right, but the most important thing of all, the most essential factor for an effective church was not present. Love. Love. You have abandoned, left, the love you had at first. And this was most likely a slow fade. A slow erosion that had not been dealt with. Hadn't been identified, recognized, and dealt with. And so it was allowed to fester and grow and spread. And so time after time after time and over time, what was going on was the foundation was eroding and cracking and crumbling. But they weren't aware of it because it was slow and it was subtle. It was subtle. That's most likely what's going on here. It was probably mixed up priorities. Where at first, the priority of this church was on love. Love for God first and foremost, and love for others. Which is always the order. Don't, don't, ever, don't ever get that wrong. We, we need to never get that wrong. Everybody, everybody hearing me on that? 
The priority for love in the church body is love for God first and love for others. But, but if you're going to love God first, you will absolutely love others. Because you're not going to be able to love God and not love others. And if you don't love other people this way, you're not going to really be able to say, oh, I love God. John himself writes about that in 1 John 4. You can't say, I love God, but, but not love your brother and sister. And if you don't love your brother and sister, you can't say, yes, I love God. It's not going to work. So what we're talking about here, most likely the, the love that they had at first that, that was true of them and vibrant had been slowly and surely pushed to the back and the back and the back, farther, 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 to the point where they actually just completely left it and abandoned it and allowed what was once a, a hot, righteous, spirit-led, spirit-filled love for God and for others, they allowed it to grow cold to the point where it wasn't even really existent anymore. So likely we're talking about their, their vertical and their horizontal love that they had allowed to grow cold and then walk away from. Mixed up priorities, where they started to hold other things higher in priority and importance, where they, they allowed themselves to be passionate about a lot of other things at the cost of prioritizing their love for God and love for others, at the cost of being passionate about their love for God and love for others and pursuing that. I think a good personal example of this probably would be Martha, as in Mary and Martha. There's a, an encounter with them and Jesus uh, in the Gospels where Jesus comes to their home and um, Martha and Mary and others are there around Jesus and, and there's this, this entertaining going on. And think of like a house party and Jesus is there and he's, he's talking and he's teaching right there in the home, and Mary is just sitting beneath him, right at his feet, hanging on every word. Martha is busy being the hostess, which is not wrong in itself. She's serving. She's exercising hospitality. It's a good thing. But she's stressed, and she's overwhelmed, and she's busy about all these different things, tending to her guests, picking up the dishes, all this stuff, bringing out more food. And she's... Huffing, and you know, you can just see her as she enters the room each time, getting a little bit more exasperated, letting her frustration being known. You know, oh, Mary, Mary, you know, and finally she just has enough. She says, Jesus, listen, I know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but my good for nothing sister, she's not helping me at all. Will you please tell her to come and give me a hand here? And maybe you remember what Jesus said. With love, with grace and truth, always grace and truth, He says, Martha, Martha, you're concerned about a lot of different things here. You're consumed by much. Mary, she's chosen the best thing she could be doing right now. She's chosen the good thing. And I'm not going to take that from her. In fact, I, it's inferred, I'd really prefer you to follow her example right now. Let all this stuff go and come and, 
and let me be the priority right now in your, in your life. I think that that's a, a very likely scenario as what we see going on in true of the Ephesus church. I think it was mixed up and messed up priorities. They were focused on good things, good things in themselves. Doctrinal purity, discernment, endurance, those were all great things. But they had neglected to the point of rejection the main thing, which is love for God and love for others. You see, outward sincerity can't hide inward sin from the all-seeing eyes of Jesus. Outward sincerity, no matter how sincere and good it is, can't hide inward sin from the all-seeing eyes of Jesus. And make no mistake about it, any time we reject, walk away from, abandon our love for God and our love for others, it is sin, no matter what else we're doing right. And we can't hide it from Jesus, even if we can hide it from everyone else, including ourselves. Hebrews 4.13, I've I've talked about this already uh, recently, but I want to draw your attention back to this. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from Him, the living eternal Word, Jesus. No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Talked about that last week when John saw that awesome vision of, of the exalted Lord Jesus and he said his eyes were like a flaming fire. And I, I told you last week that's the discerning, piercing gaze of Jesus that pierces down through the, the heart, the layers of the heart that we keep hidden from everyone else, including ourselves. He sees it. He sees it. And he saw what was symptomatic of Ephesus my friends, he sees the same thing with us. The Ephesian church serves as a warning to every church that any church can easily drift into dangerous waters. They serve as a warning, as an example to every church that any church can easily drift into dangerous waters, just like at the beach. Um, I, I just got back from the beach. I, I'm going to be honest. I wish I was still there. You know what I'm talking about. Don't judge me. Come on. And every time you go to the beach, no matter where it is or when it is, you see people that are enjoying the, you know, the waves and they're out there in the water uh, and inevitably, people go out a little bit too far, right? And when there's lifeguards present, you hear that shrill whistle, and they're doing this, right? They're motioning, come back. Why? Because they know where the riptides likely are. And they know that it doesn't take anything at all or any time at all for anybody, doesn't matter who they are, how big they are, how old they are, to be caught in that riptide and taken out to sea, and, and even when we, with the, the beach that uh, Leanne and I were at briefly, just a, a small little getaway, we saw people on their floaties, you know, enjoying the, the water. And where we were, there wasn't a lifeguard. And, and Leanne and I both looked at each other and were like, man, they're, they're kind of getting far out there. 
You know, they started off really close to the shore in their little floaty, but the current just took them, and they were floating along, happy as can be. They didn't notice a big change. They were still just floating, bobbing up and down, relaxing. They didn't know they were getting farther and farther and farther from the shore. But when they looked back, when they opened their eyes, because they were probably kind of half asleep, you know how it is, they looked back and they realized how far they were, and they started coming back. They realized, oh, I'm drifting too far. And see, that's what the Ephesian church serves as a warning of, that every church can fall prey to this, that any church is susceptible to easily drifting into dangerous waters. And it's subtle. And it's slow. It doesn't just happen all at once. Little choice here, little choice there. Little compromise here, little compromise there. And before you know it, you're way out there in the danger zone. What's the big deal, though, in all of this? That's a fair question. What's the big deal? I mean, why is Jesus so focused on this one thing when all these other things are going right? I mean, couldn't He just kind of let them slide? The big deal is that love is a big deal. That's the big deal. Love is a big deal. And by love, I I don't mean the romantic, mushy love. I mean, that's fine and well. I'm talking about about the agape love. I'm talking about agape love. The the Christ-like love that every Christian and every body of Christ is supposed to exhibit and pursue and give to one another and to have for God first and to others. Love is a big deal. And Jesus sees love, His love, and love for Him, and then His love given to others. He sees all that as such a big deal, and He loves the Ephesian church, and He loves the Faith Baptist church too much to not lovingly call out that we are drifting into danger. See, love, real love, doesn't tell people you're okay as you are. You're fine the way you are. You don't need to change anything. That's not love. Real love loves someone enough to tell them, hey, you're heading off the cliff. You better turn back onto the road. Real love says, don't go that way. If you do, it'll be disaster. Real love points out Error and weakness, not for the purpose of just making someone feel bad or judging them, but for the purpose of rescuing them. That's what real love does. And that's what our loving Lord and Savior and Chief Shepherd is doing to this church. And it's what He, what he will do to us. Love is a big deal. Here's what Jesus said about love. Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 39 records him saying this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the whole person, all of you. Love the Lord your God with everything you are. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. The second greatest, second most important command is like it and is a result of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love others. The main thing. The two main things that are to define every church. 
See, the, the church, every church, should love Jesus first and most. Then, as an overflow of loving Him first and most, we love others with His love in the way He loves. That's the way it's supposed to be. We here together, this body, this local assembly, we love the head of our church, Jesus. And then as we're loving Him, we love others with His love, just like He loves us. That's how it's supposed to be. Here's here's something else. The Apostle Paul wrote about love. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. He wrote this, If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Don't you love the word play there that the Apostle Paul incorporated? If I speak with angelic or or human tongues, but I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, all, all, that, all that tells us and all this, that points to, to a very simple but important truth. And that's that a loveless church is an ineffective church. A loveless church is an ineffective church. It doesn't matter what all is going on at that church. It doesn't matter what else they have, what else they pursue. It doesn't matter what other things are true of them and define them. A loveless church is a completely ineffective church. And that's something we need to take to heart here at Faith Baptist. We can have all the great programs that we want. We can have all the activities that we could dream of. We can have the best music. We can have the most dynamic children's ministry. We can have just all these incredible things week in and week out. But if we aren't defined and driven by love, by Christ-like love, first for Him and then His love given to one another, if we don't have that, then we will be ineffective no matter what. Let me, let me put it to you this way. Unless love for Jesus and others is a church's foundation, it will become a museum of ruins instead of a monument to the beauty and goodness of Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to be. But it won't happen without love. Back into the text, Revelation 2, verse 5. Jesus said this, Remember, so after he got done highlighting the good, but pointing out that necessary problem, abandoning their first love, he says this, in direct connection to that, the fact that they've abandoned the love they had at first, love for him, love for others. He says this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember where you were and what you left. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you, and this is just so chilling, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Ouch. Sobering, right? Now, let me point out, I need you to understand, this is not a loss of salvation. That is not what Jesus is is warning here or saying He's going to do. Not a loss of salvation. Rather, it's a loss of effectiveness. Remember I said a loveless church is an ineffective church. So this is a loss of effectiveness. This is, this is a loss of being used by Jesus as one of His lights. Remember, you're the lights of the world, Jesus said. I'm the light of the world. I give you my light. I want you to go out. I want you to shine your light. I want you to shine like the stars in the heavens. That, that people are, are drawn and gravitated not toward you, but to the source of light in you. Me. That's the goal. But Jesus is saying, if you don't repent of this, if you don't fix what I'm pointing out to you, then I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I'm not going to use you as, as one of these churches that I am using as, as sources of light. I'm going to remove you from the lampstand. In other words, I'm going to shut your church down. I'm going to close you down. I'm not going to take your salvation but I'm, I'm going to no longer consider you an active, living, vibrant local assembly as, as part of the corporate, visible body. Wow. Makes you wonder sometimes, doesn't it? That as you and I have seen various churches that just totally shut down through the years, I mean, it's sad, it's heartbreaking, it's, it's devastating. Makes you wonder, what was abandoned? before the building was abandoned? What had been allowed to grow cold before the lights went out in that place? And it's a sobering, relevant reminder to all of us, to this assembly, that that could be true of us as well. We've got to keep, we've got to keep the same warning before us, church. We've got to keep the same warning. We've got to remember what the main thing has to be, and we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Have to. Because, I mean, just think about how heartbreaking this would have been for John as he's pinning these words. As he's hearing this from Jesus and he's writing these words. I mean, we, we don't have it in Scripture, but all of, of history points to the fact that John was likely one of the pastors of this church. And if that's true, just imagine his heartbreak at having to write to the flock that he was shepherding, saying to them, you've abandoned your first love, and if you don't repent of this, you're not even going to be a church anymore. Just ah, heartbreaking. And I don't want that heartbreak for, for us. I don't, want, I don't want that to ever be able to be said to or about this church. I want us to be an example of the opposite. Of a church that may not have it all figured out. May not have all these other things that are just spectacular and great. But I want us to be known 
if we're not known by anything else or for anything else, I want Faith Baptist to be a church that is known to be a church that loves God and others well. That's what I want. And that's what Jesus wants. On the note of, just a note on repenting on that, um, I want to point out that repenting always requires course correcting. Repenting always requires course correcting. By now, I think we're all used to having Siri yell at us, you know, when you've got the navigation going with Siri on your phone or your device, you're driving along and you're relying on Siri to get you to this place or that place, especially if you've not been there before. And man, Siri points out if you're going the wrong way. And she doesn't show any mercy. She doesn't hold back. Or he, if you've changed the voice. Um, yeah, I mean, they let, Siri lets you know. Take a U-turn at such and such marker. Take a U-turn this many feet ahead. And I mean, if you don't, it keeps chirping at you. Or if you have the directions going and you decide to stop off at a restaurant or a gas station or whatever, and you don't pause it or end the navigation, man, it, Siri gets really mad. It's like, no, you moron. That's basically what Siri wants to say. You're going the wrong way. I didn't say to get off the interstate. And it tells you, course correct, course correct, right? That's what repentance always is. Repenting is always about course correcting. It's realizing you're going this way and it's not the way you need to be going. So you stop, you turn around, you go the the right way, you go the opposite direction. You go back to where you need to be. And that's what Jesus is calling for this church to do. Realize where you were. Realize what you left. Stop where you're going. Turn around. Go the other way. That's what repenting is all about. Now, let's, let's wrap up. And this is the other half of that grace sandwich. Remember? Grace and truth. Grace, hard but necessary truth. Compassion and grace again. Verses 6 through 7. So after he said, yet this I have against you, Jesus, now he says this, yet this you have. It's not all bad. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They come up again in these letters to another church. And there's not a whole lot known, but it's uh, with other Scriptures you can gather that the Nicolaitans abused the liberty that they had in Christ and encouraged others to do the same. In other words, because of grace, you can just go out and live however you want. You You can do what you want. In fact, you could even do what is usually referred to as sin, but it's okay because you've got grace covering you. To which Paul in Romans said, no, no, God forbid. That's not what we do. We don't sin so that grace can abound. But the Nicolaitans were a group that tended to focus on the sensuality of humanity and somehow say it was okay and encourage others. So Jesus said, you hate those, those, those actions. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Good, because I also hate them. And he says this, continuing, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, this isn't just to you, Ephesus. This is to all the churches, including us. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What a thought. What a promise. To them that overcome. In other words, to them that 
remain faithful, to them that do repent and keep on going the way they're supposed to go, keep on going toward me and with me and for me, all of which mark true believers by the power of the Spirit. That's what's in store. Oh, church, may we be a church that heeds the warnings of our gracious, loving Lord. May we not reject His counsel. It's right here. It's right here in this Word. May we match our lives and our our church body up, not comparing to other churches and other people. May we match our lives and our, our corporate life together. May we match it against the timeless standard of God's Word. That's the mirror we need to be looking in and changing whatever is pointed out to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word, how powerful it is, how relevant it is, and even how how hard but necessary it is. Thank You for loving us enough to preserve this specific part of your word, this letter penned by John, but dictated to him by none other than the Lord Jesus himself. How precious these words are. May they be precious to us. May they be applied by us. Holy Spirit, please draw our minds and our hearts to the truth that we just read, and may we apply whatever needs to be applied. May we, by Your help and by Your work in our lives, change whatever needs to be changed. And, oh, Father, may we be a church, a local assembly that is marked by love. Love for You first, but right along with that, as a result of that, love for others. And may we quickly repent every single time that's needed. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.